Welcome to episode five of the Leaders in Learning podcast series, a product of the Collaborating, Learning, and Adapting team at the United States Agency for International Development. Starting from a theory that effective learning organizations are more impactful development organizations, Leaders in Learning is a seven-part podcast series that explores promising practices in building learning organizations through interviews with a variety of knowledge management and organizational learning leaders in the international development sector. My name is Piers Bocock, and I am the Chief of Party of USAID's Knowledge Management and Learning Contract, also known as LEARN, and I have the good fortune of being able to host this podcast with my colleague and friend, Stacy Young, a Senior Learning Advisor in the Office of Learning, Evaluation, and Research in USAID's Bureau for Policy Planning and Learning, and Team Lead for USAID's Collaborating, Learning, and Adapting Team. If you listened to our first episode, then you already know that this series is based on conversations and interviews that Stacy and I conducted with 10 thought leaders in knowledge management and learning. Because it would be impossible to include all their wisdom in every episode, each show will share selected audio clips from three to four of the interviews to review and discuss in response to a key question with which we have been grappling. So the focus for episode five is what is the role of formal and informal leadership in creating a learning organization? This episode builds on previous episodes in connecting components of leadership and effective learning organizations, a key connection that we're seeing consistently, right, Stacy? Absolutely. So today we're going to hear clips from three of our leaders in learning that respond in various ways to three different themes that emerged in our conversations with them related to this topic. They are Tom Sinclair of CGAP, housed at the World Bank, someone you know very well. Yeah. Rob Cartridge of Practical Action, who we've heard from in a previous episode, an INGO based in the UK. And Chris Collison, a leading knowledge management and organizational learning consultant who has worked with the private sector as well as with donors. So the first set of clips will focus on the more direct and formal types of leadership support for learning. The second set of clips focuses on less direct and more informal leadership in learning. And the third set of clips focuses on characteristics or traits of supporting learning leaders. Sound good? Sounds great. And I have to warn you, Stacey, that you feature in one of these clips. Oh, boy. So just go with it. All right. So uh, let's dive into our first set. The first voice you will hear is Rob Cartridge. The second is Tom Sinclair, and the third is Chris Collison. Let's have a listen. Well, it works um, in practical action in our Latin America office that the the regional director there is absolutely committed to um, knowledge and learning work and has made it very, very clear to his staff that you know that that's a valuable part of their work he expects them to be out and influencing and writing up their knowledge and things like that um so we have one office really which is which is head and shoulders therefore in my view above our other regional offices where perhaps the focus is on something different and certainly with with our leadership in practical action um if asked the question is knowledge and learning important they will always say yes you know, it's always in our strategic document. It's very much in our new framework for change as an organization. The, the challenge is getting it to be a priority. 
You know, the, the, it's about the messaging that comes out of central leadership, which um, if the message is um, delivery, you know, and burn rates and those kind of, um, we, we must, you know, get the overhead recovery. There are only so many messages that people can hear. And if learning isn't the top of that messaging hierarchy, then it, then it does tend to get neglected because it's always a, a nice to do rather than a, um, this has to be done tomorrow because the donor's waiting for the report, really. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we talked about tolerance for risk earlier, and so that, that has to be there, and certainly the resources to do what you need to do. And then I think, you know, the, the understanding across whatever the organization it is, or at least carving out the space to do that, because I think both from the implementer side when we were implementing AMAP and KDMD, and then from the agency side, we didn't necessarily have an entire organization that gave us these enabling environments all at once to say this is your safe space to go do this, but we were able to at least carve out a, a space. Um, but that was key, to be able to carve out that space to, to do that. Um, I think Jim Collins uh, in Good to Great articulates five levels of leadership and the kind of level five leadership is all about humility and it takes uh, humility at a leadership level to exhibit that, A, that acknowledgement that, you know, we're not great at this and secondly, the humility to be curious about what can I adapt or adopt from other organisations. And there, I think the whole adaption-adoption question is um, interesting. There's, I think it's ExxonMobil um, who have a really interesting, um, or Exxon, perhaps they are now. Um, you can edit that one later. I think it's Exxon who have um, a, a kind of, a, a kind of a, almost like a fall-through. Look, if you've got a particular challenge in the business, they say um, discover and adopt. So look for someone who's got a similar problem and just adopt what they're doing. And if that's not possible, the fall-through kind of second-level action is um, discover and adapt. So find a way to adapt it to your situation. And only if you've exhausted those two do you fall through to create. Um, I create a solution which is specific to you and share. Um, so kind of uh, you know, quite a deliberate set of management priorities um, that um, they kind of embedded in their organisation to kind of counter this lack of curiosity, lack of willingness to adopt, adapt, the rush to create rather than the rush to see what we can effectively and efficiently learn from others. So Stacey, for um, our listeners, let me give a little bit of background on these three conversations. So Rob Cartridge, the first clip, we were talking to him about um, the difference between um, top leaders talking about learning and really valuing learning. Um, and mm-hmm. obviously, he, he gives a wonderful example, right, of, yes. of yeah. their office and, and of the Latin American office that said, we want you to, I, as your leader, want you to have time to, to write things down, to exchange knowledge, and to, to prioritize mm-hmm. it. Now, Tom Sinclair, he's uh, a, a colleague and friend of yours. Mm-hmm. Um, he's a colleague and friend of mine. And he mentions a couple of acronyms um, in what he's talking about and their previous projects that, that you two have worked on. That's right. Um, and it was really fun to actually to interview him but really watch the two of you reminiscing about how far things had come. Yeah, it was fun to look back at all of that. And. And I think he really honed in on something a little bit earlier in the conversation that he'd come back to, which was um, 
being able to have leaders that were able to carve out that space mm -hmm. for learning. Um, and the third, Chris Collison, I, I caught him at the end of a long day when he'd been talking about knowledge management and learning and leaders. And still to come back to this idea, he, after eight hours of leading a workshop, just he, would, he just lit up when he talked about infectious enthusiasm. Infectious leadership, yeah. 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 I love that. So what 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 came to you when you when you heard these clips? Yeah, uh I liked the I I like the selections that you put together because they all reinforce each other around um this relationship between leadership and the enabling conditions for organizational learning. Um I loved that Rob had this object lesson in his organization. Look, here's a unit that's head and shoulders above the others and it's because of the prioritization that the that the leader has made very clear to staff and I really like that he said, you know, there there are only so many messages people can listen to at once. Um I think that's really smart and, and right. And you know, if you put this put that alongside what uh Tom was saying about the importance of that enabling space and that part of leadership is to carve out that space, even if it's not across a whole organization, which of course is um, uh, reminiscent of you know the origins of the work that we're engaged in now, coming from uh, parts of the agency, and now we're working agency-wide. And, and just that, that leadership very much is not saying, thou shalt, and having you know the expectation that everybody falls in line and everybody, everybody does it the same way, but rather that you're looking for opportunities uh, and then with those opportunities, working for those people who are involved in those to create a little bit of space and make that space wider and wider as you learn more about how this work takes hold. So I thought that was really apt. And then, you know, as you say, um, Chris puts things so beautifully, and uh, and he doesn't flinch at really getting at the... Um, the passion, the commitment, and the humility, and the curiosity, and all of those soft skills that sometimes we um, shy away from talking about in the workplace, but they're so essential to the kinds of conversations we have to have in order to be an effective learning organization, in order to take advantage of those spaces that Tom is talking about. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And if... Um if we had more of the interview with Chris, who, by the way, has worked with more than 100 organizations, so he is a really good, um, he's certainly sort of a, a knowledge base for what works and uh, perhaps what doesn't. He tells a wonderful story about the International Olympic Committee and how they very overtly build in um, knowledge management and learning into mm -hmm. their process, yeah. right? Yep. And... It, it has to be, if you think about it, right? This is something that happens every four years, but they're already planning eight years in advance. And, it and it's a brand new team that does it every four years because yes. it's in a new country. Exactly. Knowledge transfer is yeah. key. But the, the people who are helping to organize it at the top, the leaders, recognize that it is essentially a knowledge management and learning exercise. So they build in 
um, after action reviews. They bring people from previous Olympics to meet with those who are working on planning ahead. And it, it it's a seven-year effort, but it is a continuous cycle. And it's really exciting yeah. the way he talks about yeah. that. Yeah, talk about intentional and resourced. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and in fact, their knowledge management and learning team is only about 10 people. It's, it's not very big. But is that true? I didn't yeah, realize that. that. The sort of core group of folks. Uh-huh. But they value the process. They understand that context matters, but so does experience. Yeah. Yeah. And it comes directly from the top. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's a, it's a great example and ha- has lots of parallels with our own situation and some distinctions as well. The Olympics is the Olympics. Uh, no doubt it has lots of wrinkles every time, but, you know, we know pretty much what it is expected to be. I thought Tom got at a really important aspect of our context uh, which is that we don't always know what to expect, and so that risk tolerance piece is so important, and that is also just a critical aspect of leadership, and a lot of people who are in leadership positions, I think, are not comfortable with that, and uh, if if they're not comfortable with risk, then they really uh, can tend to clamp down on how things are done, and that really inhibits learning and innovation. You're right, and and it does tie. It's sort of the the risk piece of it is the flip side of um, experimentation. It's just right. how it gets framed. Mm-hmm. You're right, and um, you know leaders who are willing to uh, experiment a little bit to mm-hmm. be able to encourage iteration and and be open to things not working necessarily. I don't want to say failing, um, but not working and being okay with that and learning mm-hmm. from it. Right. And and that setting that tone yeah, again absolutely. comes from formal leadership. Yeah. And I think that's also something that you bring to your leadership of the LEARN contract, the LEARN team. Uh, it's clear that you make a lot of space for people to try new things. I mean, this podcast is one example. Um, thank you, Amy, for taking risks on, on this particular effort. I wonder, Piers, you know, when I, I'm thinking about what Rob was saying about how leaders will pretty much always say that knowledge and learning is important, but not that many of them will make it an essential priority and really elevate it among all of those other priorities. Have you seen that happen? And what's the dynamic there? Well, I think that gets to one of the characteristics of USAID's collaborating, learning, and adapting approach, not just that it has to be intentional and systematic, but it has to be resourced. And that is is often where we see the rubber meets the road. Right. And we talked about that in the previous episode a little bit, but it really is a, a commitment by leadership. And people who are working on efforts who, um, know and recognize that there needs to be that more open space, there needs to be time to collaborate, there needs Mm -hmm. to be time to reflect, and seeing that built into their day, not just on in off hours, Mm -hmm. are those who double down on their commitment to the mission. Mm -hmm. And I have seen it, um, and I'm seeing more of it. I know that um, when we spoke to DFID, one of the things they're trying to do is carve out a specific percentage of time, I think it was 10% that Clive Martlew talked about, mm-hmm. that is set aside to be generous. And we, we've had him talk about that right. before right. Uh, with their time. Yeah. Um, and uh, Karen Mokate 
talked about this as well, building in that time for reverse mentorship, actually. Yes, yeah. um, so it, it is starting to happen more and more, mm-hmm. and um, it's almost ha- happening without us noticing it. But I was just at a conference with um, some of your, your friends and, and, yes. and colleagues in the market system space, yeah. and they were so um, open to the ideas around collaborating, learning, and adapting and how it could support their work. And all of it was really focused on taking time to pause and reflect regularly so that they could more quickly adapt to changes in markets. And, you know, market systems being about as dynamic a development project as you could have. Right, right, absolutely, yeah. And sure, um, uh, no mistake there, I think uh, a lot of... um, what I've been influenced by comes out of the market systems and, and market facilitation world. So, yeah. Well, it was, I'm, I'm sorry you weren't there, but Tom was. So when Tom was talking about AMAP, <laughs> um, you know, that was, yeah. that was an early market systems Absolutely. effort that yeah. you were yeah, key yeah. to. So yeah. anyway, let's move on. Okay. We can always come back to some of this. So the next uh, set of clips is, and by the way, it is hard to parse this out, direct leadership and indirect leadership. But because these, they're both required, right? Exactly. Yeah. And leaders do um, emerge at all levels if there's going to be a real learning culture. But right. this focuses more on the indirect leadership. And first we're going to hear from Tom Sinclair, then we'll hear from Chris Collison, and then we'll hear from Rob Cartridge. I actually think really the crux was, so it was this definite push, but it's also people doing development who were just frustrated. And we were doing the same things over and over again and weren't seeing any different results. Or we were doing one thing and then moving on to another, but not learning from what we did. We just thought, oh, we'll try this other thing. Um, And so you started to see a lot of, um, I think, opportunities in the field, in missions. Uh, And so I think that that's maybe the fertile ground. And so as you got this this push by um, by leaders at USAID on certain levels and where I think we'll talk about leadership too, right later. um, There's leading, there's leading from behind, there's leading from um, different uh, aspects, but definitely some push from USAID Washington. I think all that kind of came together. Maybe to flip the challenge around that leadership, that kind of lift conversation, elevator speech you might be involved in, and say, well, what is the cost of ignorance? What is the cost of organizational ignorance? What is the risk to our reputation? What is the risk to our beneficiaries? How many lives will it cost us or cost them if we're unable to mobilize knowledge effectively? So I tend to push the outcome of ignorance or reinvention down to the uh, the front line, um, the beneficiaries, and say, how many people have to die because we can't get our act together? I'm slightly hesitant, but, but, but the obvious answer for, for NGOs, particularly, as I say, medium-sized NGOs like us, is around the donors. I think that they, they are the, the, the creation of the, of the culture that we work in. So if you genuinely had um, donors, as I think we do with, with this URIC program, who are engaged in the programs, sitting with you on a fairly regular basis and saying, what have you learned and what can we change as a result of that learning and really valuing that learning, 
then slowly but surely we, we have started to embed that in a culture which reaches right down to the um, to the people on the ground who are doing the project implementation. Um, it's taken quite a long time. Um, it, it, it's not been a quick exercise because a lot of the organizational institutional processes like you know the finance department for example saying well I'm sorry that was the budget you uploaded in March and that's the budget you've got to stick to you know that's um, for lots of good audit reasons that's always there but we, we have to change those cultures as well so I think it, it, it kind of got to come from the top down there may um, the other things though I think you know that, that as an as an industry, we have a legitimacy crisis, I'd go, go as far to say. All right, Stacey, so I got gotcha. you. <laughs> that was the clip I promised. Okay. Um, and wow. asking Tom about the question I had actually asked him was around um, giving some examples of leaders at different levels um, that had had an influence on USAID's movement towards becoming a learning organization. And, and he talks, obviously, he says you, Tony Pryor, Tony. Mm-hmm. as yeah. well. You guys are very kind. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and a number of others, right, yeah. uh-huh. um, who have uh, worked with you and who've come along while you've been there. Uh, I, I think of folks like Zachary. Um, sure. Who's been working tirelessly in this mm-hmm. sector from in the Bureau for Food Security and, and a number of others. Yeah, so many. Um, but, but the point that I think he was trying to make is that it's leadership at all levels. Yes, there was a push from Washington. But then it was people who were frustrated and recognized one of the great challenges of development that can actually be solved by effective knowledge management and learning processes. Yes. Let's not keep reinventing the wheel. Right. Let's find out what's worked elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Let's be flexible and dynamic. Mm-hmm. And let's take those opportunities while we can. And then, just for background, part of the Collison quote was, I had said to him, okay, how do you speak truth to leadership? How do you make that case to that organization that doesn't necessarily have that leader at the top who's saying learning and knowledge management is important. And I love how he flipped it around. He said, well, what, return on investment, what's the cost of not doing it? Right. And we have a lot of examples of that from around the world, don't we? Yeah, we do. And I, I love that he brought that up. Yeah. So and we'll come back to that, but go ahead. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, um, Rob, why I liked his quote is, you know, he in his interview we, that we did with him, he's very real. He talks about what's working. He also talks about some of those the, the challenges. And, um, and we'll hear a little bit more about that later. But he was acknowledging that one of the key drivers uh, to change and towards organizational learning and knowledge management is the donor's embrace and encouragement of it. Mm-hmm. Which gets back to some of the um, ideas we've been talking about in in previous episodes. It's remembering why we're doing this work and connecting to the mission. And when the donors are engaged, the reality is that we feel more open to to speaking the truth about what's going on, not just telling them what they want to hear. 
Sure, yeah. I think the donors are critical in setting the tone of the conversation, and we certainly have been struggling th these last years to uh, correct an old and deep message that we had sent for a long time, which was, you know, do as we say, do as the design says, go forth and implement, um, and, you know, stay on track, stay on plan, on time, on budget, um, and, you know, don't tell us that things are <laughs> diverging from the plan but of course things always diverge from the plan right. and i think uh not just usaid but the whole development industry in general is doing a much better job of really grappling with that reality and acknowledging it and and um saying okay uh through the best of intentions we tried to manage the uncertainty in our context through more intensive and more detailed planning but that had the consequence of really making the whole thing hidebound and um, really incentivizing our partners uh, to not be adaptive, even though um, our contexts require that if we're going to be effective. So let's rethink that. Um, obviously, USAID is doing that in a big way through um, focusing centrally on adaptive management and continuous learning in the program cycle guidance. Um, and really looking at uh, adaptability in procurement and how all of this supports self-reliance. Uh, but we're certainly not alone, and we're, we certainly weren't the first ones to think about it. Um, so, yeah, I think, I think that, that uh, those are really good points about, um, you know, uh, well, like what Rob was saying, what it means to lead in a learning context. The donors have to engage people not just once, but repeatedly engage our partners on what are you learning and what are the implications and what do we need to change? And that that does have to come from the top, as he says, that uh, really strong message that we need to hear from you. Um, we need to know what what's happening that we didn't anticipate and let's figure out what that means. Let me give you a great example of that and, and you saw this. Um, as well, when we were in London, um, and we've we've talked about this previously, there were these two conferences that DFID hosted, right? And they brought together donors and partners, and said, "We are making time. We're making this time to bring you all together to acknowledge that we don't know everything, that we are committed to learning from each other, and that um, there is a group of donors who are all here who want to do this." And to me, that was a great example of DFID showing leadership, saying we are open to this, it is important to us. Mm -hmm. And the fact that USAID was there and the World Bank was there and that UNICEF was there and GIZ was there and CETA was there. I mean, this was really exciting. And Practical Action and, you know, and Chris Collison. And all of their partners. Yes. And, and, yeah, and, and in these breakout sessions, it was actually the partners leading. Yeah. These, which, which was great. Yeah, yeah, and it's what what I've heard you and others at USAID say is that often it's our partners who they have to be adaptable. Right. They're better at it, right. but we don't necessarily ask them to do it. Yeah. We don't give them the chance. Let's not make them hide it. Right. <laughs> Let's right. not add to what everything else that they have to do. Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely right. I also liked what Rob said about um, institutional processes, and you hear me. Um, grind this axe a lot, right? Uh, because I think 
where we've seen a lot of failure in knowledge and learning initiatives is when they're sort of bolted onto the side of something else as opposed to integrated into the processes. People in our industry are really busy. We are resource stressed. The uh, challenges that we're trying to meet are enormous compared to what we have to bring to those challenges. Uh, if we ask people to add another work stream alongside what they're already doing, that's not really a recipe for success. So you really have to, if you are leading a learning effort and trying to make that uh, inherent in how your organization operates, you have to look at your processes and how you make those processes learning oriented and learning supportive. You can't have a separate set of processes or expect it to happen in and around the edges of your processes. You have to use your processes and change them, leverage them for learning. And in fact, that's a great pitch for episode six, which will be all about ways to integrate, not bolt on, as yeah, you're talking great, about learning great. processes. I can't wait. Can S we talk a little bit, though, about uh, what Chris said? You know, again, just so beautifully stated where he's saying how, how many people have to die because we can't get our act together because we aren't learning or we, we keep reinventing. Uh, and that is a really compelling way to state it. It is funny, odd, that we keep having to have that conversation, right? What is the value of organizational learning? It's funny that there is still that question it, it is a conversation that you and I, I know, have both had far too many times in the course of our careers. Uh, but it's also the driving force behind the evidence base for CLA work. Uh, so I'll just put a pitch in again for that. Because we really are trying to respond to that question, which is, I think, so often driven by resource scarcity because it comes up in resource conversations in a very different way from how it comes up with technical people who are trying to grapple with what should we, what should our interventions look like? How do we do development? Um, typically, that, that conversation about why do we need to invest in this is really, it's a resource conversation and it's a, it's a conversation that is designed to winnow the things that we need to fund in order to preserve scarce resources. So I think that um, Chris gives us a really good starting point, right? What is the hypothetical counterfactual of not being a learning organization? Well, let's look at all of, all of the actual counterfactuals when we have um, uh, reinvented or when we've missed opportunities that we should have seen if we had invested more in learning. Yeah, it really is sort of a glass of cold water in the face. I mean, how many people have to die? Um, right, it really is. There's, and there's this group, HIFA 2020, in, in the uh, health sector yeah. um, that argues quite well that the majority of deaths in less developed countries are preventable if only they had really basic health information, mm -hmm. really basic. And um, that's just really sad. And there's some shocking, shocking examples. And the only difference is that the right knowledge isn't being shared. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I, I can imagine that that's the case. I hope that we'll have a chance to talk about this evidence issue another time and, uh, you know, what evidence counts and what evidence doesn't count. But um, 
anyway, I just wanted to give a plug for the evidence-based work because we are really trying to pull together different types of evidence around the contribution of collaborating, learning, and adapting as a way partly to inform those resource conversations. But I know we have more to listen to, don't we? We do indeed. We have one more set of clips, um, and these focus in on some of those characteristics that you might find from formal leaders and leaders at all levels of the organization. And first, we're going to hear from Rob Cartridge, and then we're going to hear from Tom Sinclair, and then we're going to hear from Chris Collison. I mean, it, is all, it always comes down to the people, doesn't it? And I think, if I'm honest, where, where we have struggled, um, sometimes both in the Alliance and in practical action, is where people are, are forced to do this knowledge work and they don't have the enthusiasm because we don't really have a very good set of incentives that we can that we can use with people. Um, and also you then get the changes in personnel and, of course, all the enthusiasm and the, the not-invented-here syndrome comes back. Right. Um, but then where it's worked best is where you've had people who, who really do have enthusiasm for it. And having the, the catalyst resource at the middle has allowed us to reach. So the first job that, that Lucille did in this post was to go around and meet the actual people delivering work on the ground. Um, rather than always going through sort of project managers in Geneva or in rugby or, or whatever that might be, we were able to put people much more directly in touch and perhaps get past some of the gatekeepers who were just bottlenecks to knowledge sharing, I think, um, and find people who were really interested and who could see the benefit in the knowledge sharing for their day. Yeah, so that, so, I mean that, but that is key right there, right? So to find those champions, don't spend your time on people who aren't going to pick this up right away. They'll, they'll come along later. Um, and there's also some grit that you just have to have to keep going. You know, pick yourself up and dust yourself off and just keep pushing it because you're going to have meetings where people tell you a number of things. They'll say either, well, we're already doing this, so why, why are we going to spend more money on, on this? Or why do we need to do that? Um, that's, a, that's, a, that's a waste of money. Our job is to do development. Uh, so it's really to find those people that understand and, and, and why we're doing this and to make the case with them. And as Stacy said, there were some missions that picked this up and that we were able to show, look, this is, this is why. And of course, Uganda being the, the, the key example um, where it was extremely successful and, um, and had the buy-in of senior leadership there. I would struggle to follow a leader who didn't value learning. Uh, I think that's the bottom line. There's something about people who are open, uh, curious, humble, uh, willing to embrace ideas from elsewhere, which is infectious and insp inspirational. And it's a, if you lose those things, um, it, for me, it sucks some of the joy and motivation out of working. So I guess that's the way I'd frame that one. So Stacey, I love this set of clips, and I think it gets to... Um you know, what really charges me up, which is the, the, the traits of uh, a learning champion, a, a learning leader, and, um, you know, Rob echoing, um, as if planned, but I, I assure you not, um, what Chris Collison was saying in a previous one about enthusiasm for learning right. being, being a, a key characteristic. And then Tom talking about grit. And I think that is... 
that is so true. I had never thought of it, but you and I have talked about what it used to be like to be a, um, a knowledge manager or an organizational learning person 10 years ago, mm -hmm. where you felt like you had to continually really hard. justify your own existence, yep. make the case for your job, mm -hmm. as it were. Mm -hmm. And of course, Chris talking about Jim Collison and, and good to great and the, the, the characteristic of humility and being open to not having all the answers, but then being curious and being willing to go and look for something before just jumping into creating it. And it reminds me of what we've talked about on the previous episode, this, this, this concept of, of a search frame, not necessarily just a log frame. Mm -hmm. And this idea that you don't, you know where you want to go. You're not exactly sure how you're going to get there and having a more adaptable approach to your learning. Right, yeah, and humility being essential to that because the, at, as the very first step, you have to say, yeah, I, we don't know what what we're doing or we don't know everything that we're doing or everything that we need to do, so we need to go looking. Yeah, I thought that was really, really good and apt. Um, I also like that what he's getting at is, you know, with the adapt-adopt piece, is that that humility is really critical if you're going to be the kind of leader who says, this doesn't have to be made here. You get beyond that not made here syndrome, right? And you say, we are perfectly happy to, you know, as Diffid says, steal with pride. We're perfectly happy to adapt and adopt, adopt and adapt uh, solutions that have been developed by others. We don't need to make it ourselves. And that, I think, is at the heart of knowledge and learning. You really are treating it as a development resource and trying to make the best use of that resource. And it's a way to counter what Tom was talking about, that sort of, well, let me say the opposite of humility, the arrogance of, well, we don't need to do that right now. Why should we, why should we do that? Um, and it's, it, I think it's a characteristic, I should say, the humility of, it's a reflection, let me say, of the changing nature of development. And we've talked about this uh, on previous episodes of moving upstream and not looking at us as implementing partners who have the solution or donors who say this is what needs to be done. It is being open to what people on the ground, our ultimate stakeholders need for their own self-reliance and helping discover with them co-create solutions for which they have the capacity to take on their own future. Right. Yeah, that's so right. I think a big part of this, too, has to do with where we look for knowledge and uh, where we look for leadership around learning. So, you know, I loved, you know, Rob was talking about the, the catalyst position his colleague Lucille, who has that that position of catalyst at Practical Action, and that what she really wanted to do was talk to people who were working on the ground, as we say, closest to our intended beneficiaries, to understand what their needs were because they were the ones who were enthusiastic. They could see the need for knowledge and the benefits around organizational learning for their daily work, and so so. That's an instance of looking for leadership from the people who have a certain type of knowledge that isn't always valued within organizations, but that's absolutely essential to doing development well. 
And then uh, Tom's example, of course, of the Uganda mission. Um, and again, looking at that as an instance where you had a lot of leadership in the mission that enabled the mission to become this great example. And then that aspect of leadership where you have a, a unit that is a sort of demonstration model for the rest of the agency and um, and our job was to support others in adopting and adapting and and um, taking that that leadership model forward. So talk to me a little bit about risk tolerance in Uganda. Well, yeah, that was absolutely essential. Um, you know, I've told this story before of how Tony and I, how we happened to work with Dave Eckerson as mission director in Uganda when that mission was one of three that had opted in to pilot test new guidance on country-level strategic planning. And um, Dave really saw an opportunity to do something different, and he didn't totally grasp what we were getting at um, with the learning piece, and he, he, he has always been sort of a skeptical champion of CLA, but what he did was he made space, you know, as Tom was saying earlier in today's episode, he made space for us to go there. Tony was working hard with the mission on trying to figure out what does strategic planning look like at this moment in, in USAID's history, and how can we iterate on and improve past approaches to strategic planning. Uh, but Tony and I had been working together for years, and he was um, really persuasive with Dave about the need to incorporate a learning perspective. And so, uh, you know, Tony made space for me to come in, Dave made space for both of us, and the mission made space by um, collaborating so well with us to just kind of test and refine this thing that became collaborating, learning, and adapting. It's quite the formula, isn't it? It's really complicated. So you, you talk about Tony having persistence or grit, right? And then leaders who are willing to be risk tolerant. And then um, champions who are willing to go out and find those solutions and test stuff out. Um, you know, it's funny, in this conference last week, Kristen Oplanik, who also works for USAID and um, is a huge champion of collaborating, learning, and adapting, was telling the story of Uganda to a group of about 25 of us. I was leading a session on adaptive management. Mm -hmm. And she was talking about a project that she was providing support to for about six months, that halfway through the project, they said, this isn't working. Can we start again? Here's what we're seeing. Mm -hmm. And that the mission said, okay. <laughs> and, Amazing. And that's what the room did. It was just sort of shock. And it gets back to that piece of the donor modeling of, okay, right. we can take that risk. But so what did you learn and, mm -hmm. and, and turn it around? Yeah, yeah. And it really does take somebody who is confident and, and is really attached to development outcomes, who sees the frustration that Tom was talking about that you and I have, have seen in uh, staff who are just so tired of doing things that they know are not optimally effective and says, okay, uh, you know, I don't know what the solution is, but let's try something. Let's try something that we haven't tried before. Yeah, and it is, it's all getting to that sort of doing devel development differently. Yeah, and there were so many examples of that at so many levels in Uganda, which is why it has been and continues to be a leader. I mean, I think there are other missions, of course, that have taken this work on in a really deep way. Um, but 
you know, I think about, for instance, a, a contract officer who says, okay, sure, let's design this activity uh, so that the different parts talk to each other and so that we have something like, you know, a search framework kind of model, you know, where we're saying we, we know where we want to go, we don't know how we're going to get there. And then the, the CORs saying, okay, let's work with our partners as knowledge peers. Let's hear from them about what's happening on the ground and let's course correct along the way instead of staying so attached to our initial plans. And, you know, one of the key CORs in that picture was a Ugandan FSN named Gaudencia, and I forget her last name, but it's in some of the resources that we have around this. And Gaudencia was a real leader in this area. And that, again, is something that in some missions... FSNs are not really given the latitude to lead in the way that she was. And so there was just leadership on a lot of levels and a lot of different types of enabling conditions that came together to enable Uganda to really uh, take on the opportunity and then turn around and show us what it could look like in practice. Yeah, and, and examples from Uganda and from dozens of other missions uh, can be found on usaidlearninglab.org. That's right. Yeah, check out the um, case competition library uh, because we get to see examples from missions and from implementing partners in all of those cases. But yeah, it's been so interesting to see from those early days and, you know, a fair amount of skepticism about, oh, it's it can only happen in Uganda, uh, to now when we have amazing practice on so many levels happening at so many missions quite gratifying. It's really exciting. But we have talked about a lot today. We have... um, You're going to tell me we've come to the end of our time, aren't you? I am. Yeah. For today. But we will, of course, continue in the next episode. But I think I just, it's really important for for me, for us to underline the, as you said earlier, the softer skills that have to be then um, supported by the processes. And the people, mm-hmm. um, the FSNs, Foreign Service Nationals that you speak about, are the lifeblood and the continuing institutional memory for USAID missions in the countries we work. As well as being first-rate technical staff. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that people, that processes, that culture, it all, it all comes back. That'll all sound very familiar to knowledge management nerds. But as always, um, you know, I want to thank you, Stacy, for carving out space to have these conversations (laughs) thank you Peters I want to thank Amy who really did uh, come to us with an innovation and um, all I do is create an environment in which it's okay to try stuff out but it wouldn't have uh, had a chance if it hadn't also been okayed by Stacy as well so let's just acknowledge that and then of course I've got to thank our uh, three contributing guests today Tom Sinclair, Chris Collison and Rob Cartridge so until next time thank you for joining us on the Leaders in Learning podcast The USAID Learning Lab podcast is a production of USAID Learn implemented by Dexas Consulting Group and its partner RTI International on behalf of USAID's Office of Learning Evaluation and Research in the Bureau for Policy Planning and Learning. The opinions in this podcast 
do not necessarily reflect the views of the United States government. Our music is by Pottington Bear.